Good morning. I'm Adam. I'm the director of 5th through 12th grade ministry and the co-director of the Emerging Leaders Program here at Lakeland. And I'm super excited to be back once again. Round three of four for Jonah, right? 1997 marked the beginning of a wild, edgy, industry-changing TV show called Breaking the Magician's Code, Magic's Biggest Secrets Revealed. You guys remember that show? In which a masked magician proceeded to give away lots of secrets of of magic tricks and illusions, right? Some of the, the oldest ones in the industry. Now, across all seasons, there were 17 episodes in all, and I personally sat there watching every second of every episode entranced, glued to the TV set. Kids back then, we called them sets, the TVs. I'm not actually sure why. Weird. Well, this morning, we're going to have our own version of this, this show right here, live and on stage. You guys didn't know what you were signing up for today. Only ours is going to be called Breaking the Preacher's Code, Sermon's Biggest Methods Revealed. Good. You guys sound excited for this. I'm glad. Now, if I do see anyone take out your phone and start looking for the magic one during during this message, I'm going to call you out. Right? You have plenty of time after this afternoon. You can look that up. I get it. That sounds more interesting. But at least humor me, right? Pretend that the sermon one is interesting to you right now. You are going to want to pay attention to this, though, because after we get done, you are all going to be insiders. You're going to know all the secrets. I actually am a little bit afraid that some other preachers are going to come gunning for me after today. You know, the mass magician actually had several lawsuits filed against him after his show ran. And to be honest, this afternoon, I'm probably just going to be nervous uh, waiting to hear from Pastor Dan and Pastor Garrett's respective attorneys. I really hope that doesn't happen. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious this morning to start out, right? We're being kind of silly. There's actually not enough time to, to actually delve into and reveal all of the methodology of preaching in a 25-minute message. Uh, We could take multiple doctoral-level classes and still not learn everything there is to know about preaching. But, in all seriousness, I do want to give you a quick peek behind the curtain this morning on some of the things that I am personally thinking about and trying to do when I preach. So this is going to be a partial list of questions, and I'm going to, we're going to put those up on the screen. And these are questions that I actually will, will go through after I've written a message and question myself to see if I've accomplished these goals. Number one, is the truth presented in the sermon clear and sound? Right? That's important. Is the story of the text brought to life for the hearer? What questions will my listeners have? And can I help answer those questions in the sermon itself? What does God most want to tell us through the story and the people? What does this story tell us about the character or nature of God? 
will this message, even if believed and applied, make a real difference in people's lives? And finally, how can I paint a picture of God that is so compelling and beautiful it cannot help but cause all of us to worship right here on the spot? So, now that we've spent at least a moment, a minute, uh, thinking about what makes a good sermon, I think we're ready. We're ready to become genuine, certified sermon critics. Right? This is exciting. Some of us have been practicing our whole lives for this. (laughs) Right? Now's our time. So, what I want us to do is I want us, I'm gonna, we're going to leave uh, that checklist up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you Jonah's sermon here in this chapter to the Ninevites. And I want all of us together to help uh, evaluate. How did Jonah do? How was his sermon to the Ninevites? Ready? Okay, here we go. So let me present to you again Jonah's sermon in all of its wonder. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Let's pray. (laughs) Now I'm trying to myself go through some of these. It doesn't feel like we need to go very far down this list to, uh, to form the conclusion that Jonah's sermon is awful. Truly one of, if not the worst sermons I've ever heard. I don't know if you've ever been down to the plaza or to downtown and seen some of the guys with the bullhorns, right, that are seemingly condemning everyone to hell. I've sometimes wanted to actually interrupt them as I've walked by and they've been been pointing and shouting at me and be like, I'm a Christian, uh, actually, but I guess I'm also being condemned. So, never mind, I guess. So this sermon by Jonah right here in this chapter makes those guys and their sermons look absolutely amazing by comparison. Right? It blows them out of the water. And yet, in our next very, very unexpected event here in the book of Jonah, it seems to work. We find the Ninevites move to recognize the error of their ways, desiring to do better, and even pledging to end all of their egregious and evil deeds. What are we supposed to do with this? This is odd. This scene from Jonah reminds me of a story from the Gospel of Luke, actually. In Luke chapter 9, to set the stage for this passage, we have uh, Jesus' disciples moving around, and they encounter this guy who is performing miracles in Jesus' name. The only problem is they don't know this guy at all. They've never seen him, right? They don't know who he is or what he's doing or why he's doing it. So here in uh, the chap- in John Oh, I'm sorry, in Luke uh, 9, 49, John said to Jesus, 
Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. Now, what do you think the chances are that that guy was theologically sound in what he was doing? Can you picture the scene in your minds? I can, and i got to say, i got to lean toward the disciples on this one. We've got some charlatan hack out there casting out demons, invoking the name of Jesus, doing God knows what else, and yet Jesus allows this to happen. Why? Maybe for the same reason. That Jonah's awful, no good, worst sermon ever actually brought some level of repentance from the Ninevites when they heard it. Because God can work in the hearts of those who hear his message preached and can cause repentance even despite sometimes how the message is preached. We are conduits containers of a living, breathing, holy word of wisdom from the mouth of God himself. We cannot mess up the Holy Spirit's ability to grab a hold of a human heart and speak life and hope and truth into it. In fact, God's word often lands softly on human hearts despite our confused, bungled-up efforts. However, with all that said, at the same time, what we say and how we say it is also incredibly important. Now, I know that we just got done discussing the surprising fact that the Ninevites appeared to respond positively to Jonah's message here in this story. But now, we're going to take a slight left turn and go in a different direction. In fact, now I'm going to give you two major clues that Jonah's message to the Ninevites didn't actually cause real heart change in them. Stay with me. This is all going to come together, I promise. First, when we see people in the Old Testament coming into some type of relationship with God, the passage itself often gives us a very interesting clue as to how deep and how profound and how long-lasting that person's relationship actually is. In the Hebrew, there are two words frequently used for God. One is Elohim. Now, this is the common word for God, uh, almost like a title or a description about God. Then there is Yahweh. This is the very deeply personal name of God that he revealed to Abraham when he forged the first covenant with his people. The people of Israel considered this name so sacred and so intimate that they did not dare speak it out loud because they didn't want to assume 
that such a mysterious, infinite, almighty God could be known on such a deeply personal level. Now, in the book of Jonah, we have two separate stories of pagan groups of unbelievers turning, repenting, and coming back to God. We have the sailors, remember, from all the way back in chapter 1. And then our story this morning, here in chapter 3, we have the people of Nineveh, the Ninevites. Now, the sailors in chapter 1, when they began worshiping and praising God, the text tells us they called on the name of Yahweh, the deeply personal covenant name of God. However, in this chapter, when the Ninevites repent of their evil and the king issues the decree for everyone to pray to God, he uses Elohim, the more generic, non-personal name. The fact that there is a difference here seems incredibly important. And it may indicate that the Ninevites' collective relationship with God actually falls a little bit short of of intimate and deeply personal and life-changing. There's a second clue that we may have reason to doubt the Ninevites' complete heart change here. As I was reading this chapter, one of the questions that immediately popped into my mind was, what happened to the Ninevites? Is there any historical evidence to show that their repentance here in chapter 3 had long-lasting effects for them as a community and a people group? So I went digging a little on this question, and this is what I found. The events of the book of Jonah likely happened somewhere around 760 B.C., give or take five or ten years. A mere 40 years after this, one generation later, we find the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was one of its most important cities, invading the northern kingdom of Israel, capturing and enslaving many people. Around 100 years after the events of Jonah, we find the prophet Nahum issuing a prophecy against not just the entire empire of Assyria, but specifically the city of Nineveh, detailing God's anger at their evil deeds, including enslavement of other people, idol worship, and even plotting against God himself. The Ninevites had gone right back to their old wicked ways. However, this time, we find no repentance on their part. No recognition at all of any wrongdoing. And thus, 150 years after the events of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire is attacked by a, com- by a combined army of Babylonians and Medes. Assyria is defeated and wiped completely off the map. So what's the takeaway here? It's not a stretch based on this passage and our knowledge of history to conclude that after hearing Jonah's half-hearted message, the Ninevites' hearts were not deeply changed, and they only really repented of their social crimes. 
they really only attempted to change their behavior, their actions, the outer facade, how they dealt with each other and the people around them. Now, that's not nothing, right? I mean, we find God praising them for this and not destroying them because of it in this chapter. But it's not the best thing. The best possible thing that the Ninevites apparently did not do is to actually know and love God in such a way that our hearts are bound to his in a way that transforms our entire beings from the inside out. Now, what I'm talking about goes beyond just changing how we look and how we act and how we portray ourselves to the world. I'm talking about deep-seated, formational heart change. To want to love others because you truly truly believe that God loves you. To forgive and show mercy and kindness to others because you feel forgiven by a kind and merciful God. And if we want to absolutely ensure that this happens with the people around us that we love and care for, we must show people a loving, forgiving, heart-changing God. On this objective, Jonah absolutely failed. So now we've created a bit of a paradox for ourselves in this third chapter of Jonah, haven't we? We've concluded, on the one hand, that God is in divine control over how the proclamation of his word is heard and received. And we've concluded that when it comes to actually proclaiming God's word ourselves, what we say and how we say it absolutely matters. This morning, I want to attempt to show you that both of these conclusions can be true at once. They're both found in the words of scripture, and they're both easily observable out in the world. And as I thought about how best to help you see how both of these can be true at the same time, I remembered something that happened to me several months ago. My son, Owen, is four years old, although at the time that this happened, he was three. And one day, he comes running up to me, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, I drew a picture of you. And I take the picture, and I look at it. I don't know how many of you have had the pleasure of seeing a drawing by a three-year-old. But if we're being brutally honest, they're not good. I mean, to say that this resembled me in any way would have been quite the stretch. But in that moment, as I looked at that picture, that was absolutely not what I was thinking at all. I was absolutely over the moon with joy. My heart was completely melted, blown away that my son, who I love more than anything, would want to draw a picture 
of me. That he was spending his time thinking about me. And he wanted to show me that he was thinking about me. And that is exactly how our Father in Heaven views us. We spend a lot of time trying to understand God better and explain Him to each other. And you could say that what we're doing is metaphorically taking out our crayons and doing our very best to draw little pictures of God. And if God wanted to be brutally honest, He could probably look down at our little crayon sketches through which our limited, finite minds are attempting to behold and describe and capture an infinite, eternal, almighty, sovereign, mysterious God and say, that doesn't look anything like me. It's a stick figure with little stick arms and hands. The proportions don't even make sense. That's not even the color of my hair. (laughs) But he doesn't. Scripture is really, really clear on this point. When we run up to God with our silly little drawings of him, he is absolutely over the moon with joy. His heart is completely melted blown away by the fact that his children, who he loves more than anything, would want to draw a picture of him. That that we are actually thinking about him and would want to show him that we're thinking about him. I really want us all to see first and foremost that this is a really hopeful story. God loves when we proclaim his word to others and when we attempt to describe his beauty and his truth to them. I mean, any attempt to draw God is better than no attempt at all. But let's also realize that when we argue, when we bicker and show contempt for each other over theological differences, when we absolutely tear each other apart on Facebook or over Twitter. Well, this would be like if my wife had seen my son's drawing of me and she had run over and said, Son, what are you doing? This doesn't look anything like your father. Give me that. And then she added one little stick finger to one of the hands. Is that better? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) But in the grand scheme of things, her indignation, her condemnation over my son's picture, it would have seemed way out of line, right? Even downright ridiculous. Let's not do this to one another. Let's not shout each other down and mock and disparage each other's attempts at drawing pictures of an infinite, almighty, mysterious God, when the best we are often able to do is maybe add a little stick finger to someone else's stick hand. However, I'm not saying 
that we should stop trying to see God and stop trying to draw him as accurately as we can. The more time and effort that my son spends on a picture of me, the more blown away I will be at his desire to see and understand and depict me. The more touched my heart will be, and this is the crazy part, the more and more accurate his pictures of me will actually become. That is so important. Our quest to know and love God and to understand him better is not utterly hopeless. The more and more time that we spend in his presence, desiring to know him and love him and to be able to capture his heart and his will for the world, the better we'll actually be able to do it. And there's even more good news. You see, God hasn't left us with some blank slate. He hasn't said, well, I'm just going to remain completely mysterious to you, giving you absolutely no picture or idea of who I am or what I'm doing and why in the world. No. God has given us his word. He has given us stories that show us glimpses and snapshots of who he is and what he's doing. And the most important thing to remember is that his word is pointing us toward every single time. Every case, this is true, is pointing us toward the word, the living, breathing word, Jesus Christ. We have a really good picture to start from as we try to make our own. A picture of a God who would leave his throne in heaven to be near his beloved children who are struggling and in pain. A picture of a God who would allow himself to be captured, beaten, mocked, and killed in order to offer utmost freedom, honor, dignity, and eternal life to his people. A picture of a God who, while hanging from the very cross that his own people hung him on to die, whispered, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This entire chapter, Jonah getting a second chance here, at preaching to the Ninevites. It reminded me of another famous shot at redemption in the Bible. When Jesus was arrested and taken to trial, one of his best friends and closest followers, the disciple Peter, pretended not to know Jesus so as to avoid guilt by association. He did this three times in a row. However, after Jesus was resurrected, He came back to find Peter, and they had a very meaningful and important conversation. We'll pick up in John 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, 
Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Jonah and Peter are both offered another chance to reflect God's will to the world. And they are given, in effect, the same exact command. Feed God's sheep. Take care of God's people. Usher the world toward salvation and renewal. How? By loving them. By tending to their needs. By challenging them to change their ways, sure. But most of all, by painting for them a beautiful picture of God. A picture that people will want to stop and behold for hours on end, captivated by its breathtaking magnificence. So let ourselves, let us ourselves, look upon the wonder of God. Let us behold the beautiful picture that we have of him in Jesus. Let us worship Jesus and make much of him in this world with everything we say and do. Let us never give up trying to draw pictures of God. And let us come running with every single picture we've made to show him, to show the one whose heart will be absolutely melted and delighted by what we've brought. Amen?